This evening will be in Luke chapter 8, so let me invite you to turn there with me, Luke chapter 8. Luke has been leading us in his gospel as his readers to answer the question, Who is Jesus? We have seen Jesus teach with authority. We've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him heal the sick. But, but Luke is doing something more. He's showing us that, that those who properly, properly respond to Jesus and his work are those who are his disciples. Those who properly respond to his work are his disciples. Because seeing and hearing Jesus... So if we just see his miracles, that's not enough. Seeing his miracles and responding rightly to them is the evidence of genuine discipleship. And so what he's trying to do here, Luke, as the author, is he's trying to connect for us our understanding of Christ's identity with our following of Christ, our discipleship. And that's what we're going to see. Those two things kind of come together that as we understand more about who Christ is, we're better disciples. As we are better disciples, we understand more of who Christ is. They're kind of interrelated in that way. And uh, what ultimately Christ is looking for is a proper response of faith and obedience from us. So let me read our passage for us. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40, down to the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. This is the Word of God. And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed Him, for they had all been waiting for Him. And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore Him to come to His house, for he had an an only daughter, about twelve years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him, and a woman who had a hemorrhage for twelve years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is this one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, Stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for her for something to be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. In verses 40 through 56, we see that saving faith relies on Christ's power. Saving faith relies on Christ's power. And we're going to take the middle story first. If you notice, it starts out with a story about Jairus, this synagogue official, and then it moves to, uh, it kind of has this interruption with the woman with the hemorrhage, and then it goes back to Jairus. So we're going to take the story about Jairus and his daughter. 
second, but we're going to look at the woman with the hemorrhage first. And that begins the second part of verse 42. And here we see, saving faith relies on Christ's power even when all resources have been exhausted. Even when all resources have been exhausted. As Jesus returned, um, let's just get a little background here in verse 40. Jesus returned. He took His disciples, remember, across the Sea of Galilee and they were going over to the, the, to the area of the, the Gerasenes, remember? And there He healed this demoniac who was filled with a legion of demons, who was possessed by a legion of demons. And yet, how did the people respond to Him? How did those Gentiles respond to the ministry of Jesus in their town? Acceptance or rejection? Rejection. Okay, so you have Gentiles rejecting Jesus. And now you're going to come over. He's coming back now here to Capernaum, which is a Jewish area. And how is he going to be recepted by the synagogue official, the woman, the crowd? In general, it's actually one of acceptance. So uh, if you think about Jesus' ministry, normally what happens is he's rejected by the Jews and accepted by the Gentiles. And here it's actually reversed. Uh, He's rejected by the Gentiles in the land of the Gerasenes, and he's accepted by the Jews. Well, in verses 40 through 42, the synagogue official comes, tells him about his daughter who is dying, and apparently Jesus hears of what's happening, and instead of doing a, a long-distance healing, saying, go back, your daughter, which he can do, but, but instead of doing that, he actually goes to the, to the house. He heads along with the synagogue official, and um, we'll come back to that story when we get to verse 49. But on the way to the official's house, notice at the end of verse 42, they're back in Capernaum. They've, they've gone across. They had that storm. Went over to the land of the Gerasenes. Healed the demoniac. Came right back. The people were waiting for them. Then in verse 42 at the end it says, But as he went to Jairus' house, the crowds were pressing against him. This word pressing is, uh, is used again. Uh, let's see. Peter uses it again. I'm pretty sure. Where is it? can't find it here, but but the word pressing here is a word that means uh, choked. So turn back to uh, verse 45, yes. And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. So that word that comes from the Greek word, turn back to verse 14, is the same word that's used here in verse 14. And notice what it's used to describe. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit. Which word do you think is the same Greek word that's translated as pressing in verse 45 and verse 42? Choked. And what happens to something that's choked? Okay, in this case, right, it dies. It gets suffocated. Uh, had this, uh, kind of saw this in my backyard. You had these huge weeds that are just taken over and um, had to do some some surgery there this past week because these weeds will just choke out all the life and, and take up all the, the resources that are needed for this for the good plants and the good flowers to grow. And that's the idea here, that this crowd was was pressing in on him. It's it's to the point where they're just kind of squeaking their way through, uh, trying to avoid being suffocated from the crowd. And this... Uh, helps provide the setting for what is about to happen because in verse 43 we're introduced to this woman. This woman is a woman that had a hemorrhage for 12 years and she could not be healed by anyone. She had a chronic bleeding problem 
potentially internally, um, probably from a tumor or some other disease. And notice how long that it takes place, how long that she's been experiencing this for 12 years. And this would have left her in a a state of perpetual ceremonial uncleanness that she would not have been able to worship in the temple. She would not have been able to touch anyone because what happens when an unclean person touches someone else? It actually makes that person unclean. And so she would basically have been ostracized as an individual. People wouldn't want to be around her. And notice that the text says in verse 43, she could not be healed by anyone. Mark's Gospel tells us that she basically spent all of her resources on these doctors trying to be healed. And she had been working through this for the past 12 years to try to rid herself of this problem. But not only did she not get the treatment that she wanted or the results that she wanted from the treatment, the healing, but she also lost all of her money and possessions in an effort to be healed. But notice what she does in verse 44. She relies on Christ's power. And this is the really the principle that we're learning from this passage, that we must rely on Christ's power. That's what genuine saving faith is. She came up behind Him, verse 44, and touched the fringe of His cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Now, this is a bold act of faith on her part and shows that she actually does understand Christ's power because... This, because of her chronic bleeding problem and because of her ceremonial uncleanness, she would have had to do something in order to get into this crowd in the first place. Okay, Assuming this is her hometown, which we'll assume that it was, and assuming they knew who she was, what do you think she'd have to do in order to make her way to Jesus? Disguise herself probably in some way. To try to get in there and touch Jesus. Just as as little, any part of him that she could touch. So she's actually going into this crowd knowing that she's going to infect them with ceremonial ritual uncleanness and in touching Jesus, potentially infect him as the rabbi, the teacher. And yet the text says that she touched the fringe of his cloak. There's these little tassels on the end of a square garment that they would throw over the left shoulder and hang down their back and she just touched one of the the edge of the cloak, the edge of the tassel probably. And you can just picture her squeezing her way through this crowd that is pressing in on Jesus because they want to touch Him and see Him and talk to Him. And she touches just the edge of His cloak as He walks by. And notice the result at the end of verse 44. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. How long had she had this affliction? 12 years, and she'd gone through all these treatments. None of them worked. And now, with just the touch of the cloak of Jesus, she's healed instantaneously. Apparently, according to Mark's Gospel, she knew it right away. It wasn't that Jesus said this, had to tell her, hey, your internal bleeding has stopped. No, it was that, that she had some kind of physical sensation that indicated that she was healed. That this condition that she had struggled with for the last 12 years was now gone. And so in verses 44 through 45 through 47, the woman's deed is exposed. Notice verse 45, Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? When, uh, when uh, Paul and I were in Brazil, we rode a bus, and on some of the stops, it was extremely tight. 
we we don't like giving up our personal space. I I particularly don't like uh, when people touch me. Uh, so those of you who went to Africa know that. But um, okay, so we're we're in this bus, and the the joke that that we had going was, you know, who touched me? And of course, we're speaking the English, and these people hopefully didn't understand English. And how's it going over there? Good. Somebody touched me though, and um, it's it's kind of silly because there's so many people of course you're going to be touched or you know think of the example of of princess kate you know if she took out uh prince prince george and decided you know what we're going to go down to downtown london and as she's walking through downtown london she turns around and says who took my picture right it's kind of silly i mean of course people are going to take your picture and this is the idea that jesus makes kind of a comical statement or a comical question here I mean, you're walking through this crowd being pressed in on, and, and you ask who touched you. There's dozens of people who touched you. But Jesus wanted to do something that we understand, and that is to, to expose what the woman did for the sake of the woman and for the sake of the crowd. Okay? Not, not because, oh, what, what just happened there? Verse 46. Uh, actually, verse, end of verse 45. Just notice that Peter recognizes how silly this is. They were all denying it. And Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. And then Mark's Gospel just kind of fills it out a little bit more and just says, and you ask who touched you? I mean, what kind of question is that? But Jesus wanted to expose her faith, really, and her healing. Verse 46, But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. Okay, now, it wasn't that Jesus didn't know where the power went to. Like, man, it kind of felt like I got drained a little bit. And I want to know where that left to. Who's, who's got my power? The point is that he wants to reveal for the woman and for the crowd who had touched him. And if you think about it, Jesus could have just turned around and kind of given her a glance and showed her that she was healed. If, if all he wanted to do was just reveal to her that she had been healed, he could have just turned around and given her the all-American nod. You know that one when you walk by somebody and that one? Okay, He could have just done that to the lady. But instead, he, he exposes her before everyone. She knew she was healed. Jesus knew that she was healed, but he wanted to expose it to her and the crowd that she had been not only healed but forgiven. Well, the woman was terrified. The woman was terrified in verse 47. When the woman saw that she had not escaped to notice, she came trembling and fell down before him. Apparently, she comes in with this disguise and hopes that she can leave without being noticed. Hey, I'm healed. I'll tell everybody later, but I don't want to make a big scene. It may have sounded like a silly question to the disciples, you know, who's touched me, but to the woman, it must have been terrifying. I mean, how would Jesus treat her if he found out that it was her who touched him, knowing that she was unclean, knowing that she would have passed her ritual uncleanness onto him. How would Jesus have treated her? What about the synagogue ruler? Synagogue ruler knew exactly what ritual uncleanness was all about. How was he now going to perceive her? What about this crowd? How dare you come in and risk our our uncleanness? And so she must have been terrified. And yet, she understands to a degree what has happened. Look at the end of verse 47. She came trembling and fell down before him 
and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had immediately been healed. She understands it was the touch of Jesus' cloak that cured her. And I think here in verse 48, we have evidence that she actually was saved. Look at verse 48. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Okay, And I don't think he's talking about primarily physical touch, although that was part of it. It's not, there's nothing magic about um, you know, touching Jesus' cloak, but it was her faith that, that brought about the healing. You see, faith is not by itself doing the healing. God is the one who's doing the healing. Christ is the one who's doing the healing. But it's the woman's faith that was God's appointed means to bring about the healing. And I think also her spiritual salvation. That's why I think Jesus used the phrase, made you well. Look back up to verse 36. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. There's that same phrase, and it's the idea of, I think, genuine saving faith that Christ is bringing about salvation to the woman in addition to the, the physical healing. And Jesus calls her out in verse 48 and says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. What He wants to do for her is to, to uh, justify her in the face of the crowd, in, in the sight of the crowd, so that they know that, hey, she has been forgiven. What she's done is a good thing. And her faith is commendable and for her so that she would not walk away you know, frustrated or, or confused about her standing before God but that she would know that she has been restored not only to Jesus, but also to the community. You see, she had exhausted all of her resources in order to get healed, to get this, uh, to get this illness, this disease out of her body, but that was to no avail. It wasn't until she put her faith in Jesus and what He could do that, uh, that, that Christ actually brought about the healing. So saving faith relies on Christ's power uh, even when all the other resources have been exhausted. Secondly, we see in the story of Jairus that saving faith relies on Christ's power even when everyone else has given up. Even when everyone else has given up. Look back to verse 41 because we're introduced to this man, Jairus. He was an official of the synagogue. Okay, So probably some kind of a leader uh, perhaps a layman who presided over the affairs of the synagogue, his responsibility would be to organize and teach in synagogue services, or I should say organize who would read and teach in the synagogue services. So if Jesus were in town, if later on Paul would be in town, hey, Paul, would you come and, and just teach for us on a Sabbath? He was a man who who was probably a Pharisee. Most of these synagogues, synagogue officials were Pharisees. He was a man who presided over people. And yet here we find him begging for help from Jesus. One who is in a, a great position in terms of in terms of the um, in terms of the religious state, and yet he's here begging Jesus for help. Jesus had probably met him before since Jesus' custom was to go into each of the synagogues, and so he likely have had already met him. In fact, some scholars suggest that that he was actually there when Jesus did a healing. Um, that that there was the same synagogue in which Jesus uh, did the healing in chapter four, verse thirty-three. Um, 
In a synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. And the reason that they think that is because verse 31 of chapter 4 tells us that it's in Capernaum, and that's where they are now. So it's very likely that this man, the synagogue official, had witnessed Jesus cast out a demon in his presence. And now he's turning to Jesus and saying, Listen, can you help me? Can you help me? Whatever the case, he he falls at the feet of Jesus, which is just a normal response for people and even demons when they come into His presence. He falls at His feet and begs for His mercy. Notice that He doesn't come to Jesus with a list of demands. He doesn't come with a list of expectations. Instead, He comes humbly, like the centurion, chapter 7. In verse 41, it says, He fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore Him to come to His house. No demands or expectation, entitlement, Instead, he says, listen, Jesus, can you help me? I'm at your mercy. The fearful desperation of the man is seen in verse 42, that he had this daughter who was 12 years old and she had a grave illness. And he tells Jesus about this daughter and asks for his help. And Jesus immediately, apparently, heads with him to to go to heal this daughter. And so, Jesus and Jairus start heading for the house, but... Their brisk walk is interrupted by the pressing crowd. And then Jesus takes a little stop to talk to the, the woman who is healed. And I don't know about you, but if I were Jairus, I would be frustrated because my daughter is waiting at home and she, she doesn't have much time. Have you ever had an important meeting with your boss interrupted or with another person? Uh, my boss at Jackson Dawson, John Taylor, is one of the hardest working people I know. He is a professional multitasker. While he's working through a budget with you, he's also responding emails, responding to emails. And as the CFO, he's responsible to, to have his hands in just about everything in the company. And, and therefore, he's in high demand. People always want to talk to him and ask him questions and figure out what to do for their budgets. And so we sit down with him for a meeting of something important that's that needs to be done today, that needs to be done right now, and you finally get him to sit down and talk to you about it, the worst thing that can happen is when when you're trying to get your problem resolved and someone else comes into the room and asks them a question. And you're just like, i got to get this done. It, the, the best time to get them is when the door is closed. Try to close the door so that no, people have to knock or just you know recognize that he's in a meeting. But but even still, you got the receptionist calling in, hey, someone wants to talk to you. I can tell you that it's really frustrating if you have something that needs to be done and you can't get it done because of interruptions. And I think that Jairus is in a very similar situation but on a, a, a much deeper level because it affects the the life of his very daughter. You know, my daughter is dying and you stop to heal someone that has been sick for 12 years. You know, she could have waited a little bit longer. Now, the text doesn't say that, but, but, but the point is my daughter can't wait. Now, after he saw the healing of the woman, I think he, he might have had the thought, well, you know what, if he can heal her, if he can heal this woman, then certainly he can heal my daughter. And so I think that actually probably increased his faith, but there's probably, faith, but in, uh, there's probably still a sense of frustration. I mean, what must have been going through Jairus' mind at this point? As he's waiting for Jesus to come, he gets word in verse 49 that it's too late. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue officials saying, 
Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Jesus and Jairus learn of the daughter's death. A messenger comes to Jairus. When we first met Jairus, his daughter was dying, but now because of Jesus' delay to heal this woman, she's died. She has died. The faith of the synagogue ruler may have increased when he saw the healing of the woman, but quickly went from, I can imagine, expectant hope and confidence in what Jesus to do to crushed despair. In fact, the messenger gives up on the girl. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 49. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. In other words, it's too late. He, he missed his opportunity. But Jesus calls on Jairus to trust him, verse 50. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. Jesus apparently overhears the conversation and reassures Jairus that everything is going to be fine. You need to trust me. And although the natural tendency was to be afraid, Jesus called on Jairus to recognize his identity and to trust his ability to provide salvation for his daughter even though she was dead. In verses 51-53, through 53, Jesus is about to perform the miracle, but he first downplays the miracle. He downplays the miracle. First, He downplays the miracle by allowing only the parents and the three disciples to enter. Verse 51, When He came to the house, He did not allow anyone to enter with Him except for Peter, John, James, and the girl's parents. Remember, we're trying to, as we're learning more about discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus, we're also trying to answer the question, Who is Jesus? And I think this will help give the disciples a window into who Jesus is. And He wants to show these three disciples specifically who He is. Because later on in chapter 9, verse 20, He's going to ask, Who do you say that I am? He's first going to ask, Who do the people say that I am? And then, Who do you say that I am? And Peter's going to answer on behalf of the disciples and say, We believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here's a great proof for it. We saw you raise this daughter from the dead. So he downplays the, the miracle that he's about to perform by only allowing the parents and the three disciples. Secondly, he downplays the miracle by calling the girl's death sleep. Notice verse 52. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, Stop weeping, for she has not died but is asleep. Now, who are these people who are weeping and lamenting? Okay, obviously it's not Jairus. He's walking with Jesus. Not the disciples. They're walking with Jesus. Um, Mark's Gospel tells us that there were... um, Or or Matthew's Gospel says that the whole house is full of flute players and this large crowd and that they were in a noisy disorder. So so some would argue that, that these were just house guests. They just happened to be there. They found out about the death and they came to encourage the family. But I would suggest to you that it's probably more more like professional mourners. In those days, in the ancient Near East, um, obviously as they do today, especially with, uh, out, without embalming, bodies decompose very quickly. And so they didn't have much time to bury the, the, the body. And so they would hire, they would hurry up and have the funeral service very quickly. But they would have mourners that would come in and flute players uh, so that when someone would die, that they would... Um, 
kind of do the mourning and the wailing really quickly. Um, which explains the noisy and chaotic house that, Mo- that Matthew records. One of the rabbis in the Mishnah quotes that anyone who had a burial uh, for a dead family member was supposed to have at least two flute players and one wailing woman. And uh, so even the poorest person in Israel was supposed to have two flute players and one wailing woman. However, the ruler of synagogue was likely not a poor man, which would explain the large commotion, that they're all weeping and lamenting. And Jesus comes in and says to them, just imagine this huge crowd that's in the house and probably a huge crowd that's following Him. And He sees this huge crowd that's crying and said, don't worry, she's not dead. She's just asleep. So He's, what's He doing here? Hey, what does it mean that she's not dead? We must understand this in, in the context, within the context, okay? Because we could look at it and say, well, maybe the messenger was mistaken. She wasn't dead. But notice verse 49 again. Um, your daughter has died. He was, he was sure that she was dead. I mean, if you've ever had to handle or deal with family members who have, family mem- who have someone else who's on the brink of death, that's not something that you want to talk about when you're unsure. You know, your, your family member has died, right? You want to make sure that you know before you say that. And the people also know that he has died. The people at the house. Look at verse 53. And they began laughing at him knowing that she had died. So within the context, we know that she, in fact, has died. Now turn to John chapter 11 because we have very similar, we have a similar um, words that Jesus speaks about death. calls it sleep. John 11:11 This he said after that they said to him our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep Okay so Jesus gets news that, that Lazarus is sick and then he stays there uh far from from Bethany for a few more days and then he finally tells the disciples he's fallen asleep and I need to go so that I can awaken him. And notice with their response in verse 12, the disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, well, then he'll recover, right? But Jesus, John records, had spoken of his death, but they thought he was talking about literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them, no, guys, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So what's Jesus saying here? He's calling Lazarus' death sleep. And the point is this, the same point, stay here in John 11 because we're going to look at some more verses, but the point is in our passage in Luke that, that uh, they believe that this death is final. And what Jesus is saying, that this person's life, Lazarus in this case, and the daughter's life in the other case, that her, her life will not finally end in death here. This is not the final point of her life. I'm going to raise her. That's the point. Because there's only two options. Either he's speaking figuratively like he is in John 11, or he's mistaken or lying. Okay, this is actually three options, but we'll take the two together. Mistaken or lying. Could Jesus ever be mistaken or lying? No. So the only other option is that he's speaking figuratively. That in fact she is literally dead, but she's not finally dead. That's what he's saying. She's not finally dead. She's only asleep in the sense that she's temporarily dead. That's the idea. So, so um, he's not giving a misdiagnosis here. He's just making a prophecy of 
her resurrection, which the people did not understand. So why did Jesus say that she was not dead? Why not just say, along with the mourners and the messenger, she is dead, but I will raise her back to life. Why not say that? I mean, that is clearer. We could all understand that. We could all walk away from that knowing what's going on. The people would be fine with that. They would praise God for praise Jesus for raising uh, this girl to dead. Well, what would have happened? Think about it this way. What would have happened if Jesus had publicly raised this girl from the dead? What would have happened if he brought the girl's body out into the main part of the house or outside and raised her from the dead in front of everybody? Well, look at John chapter 11 and verse 45, and this will give you an idea of what would have happened. John 11, verse 45, Therefore many of the Jews had came to Mary. Remember, Lazarus was a public resurrection. There were Jews and Pharisees that were there who had witnessed it. Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what He had done believed in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs or miracles, wonders. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then skip down to verse 53. Notice what their final resolution is. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. What happens if Jesus performs this resurrection of this girl earlier in his ministry than here, this this uh, resurrection of Lazarus, what would have happened? If he would have displayed his power over death and done it in a public way, he would have been claiming and proving that he was God to the masses and they could have taken that information like the the Jews that responded wrongly, because some Jews believed, but the Jews that responded wrongly and turn that into what? A plot to kill Him. And so Jesus, in order to avoid preliminary death, downplays the miracle and calls it sleep. Okay, So He's saying this is temporary. Now He's going to show very clearly to the three disciples who are in there and to the parents that this is a clear resurrection. But for now, He wants the crowd to know that, that it's only a temporary death. It is sleep. He is still speaking truth, but He's veiling it from them. Verse 56, He also downplays the miracle by silencing the witnesses. We'll see that shortly. But first in verse 54, you can turn back to Luke chapter 8. Luke 8:54. We see that He resurrects the girl from the dead. He, however, took her by the hand. So He goes into this room alone with the three disciples parents and says, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up immediately and gave he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. So it was clear that she was dead and it was clear that she is now alive because Jesus commands her to arise. Her spirit returns to her. She gets up immediately. She eats something and her parents are amazed. But again, Jesus downplays the miracle by telling them not to say anything about it. Don't tell anyone what's about to happen. Now, turn back to verse 39. Because it's interesting that in the Gentile region of the Gerasenes, where He just was, Jesus was not concerned about public popularity. Notice what He tells to the man who wants to come with Him, who had been healed. 
He says, no, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. Jesus, Jesus' um, custom has been, when He's in Jewish territories, like when He healed the leper, well, now when He raises this girl, lots of other miracles, He says, don't tell anyone. Don't say anything about it. But here, in the Gentile region, with a demoniac, a former demoniac, He says, go tell everybody. Tell your, go back to your house. Make sure everybody knows what great things God has done. But now that he's back in a Jewish region of Capernaum, it's, crypt, it's critical that his word, the, the word about him does not get out. Because his job, his goal, is not to go around and put on a traveling miracle show and gain a huge following. You know, I could really gain some huge crowds. You know what his job was? The Son of Man came to what? Seek and to save that which was lost. And here's what he's doing when he's saying, don't tell anyone. If you tell someone, it's actually going to create a hindrance to my ultimate goal, which is to seek and to save the lost. Because people will hear about this and they will wrongly understand what it means for me to be the Messiah. And they will want me to be the King. Others others want to kill me. Because... Because... They see me as uh, trying to step over their authority. And so, because it wasn't his time, right? You remember in John chapter 11, the, the disciples say, Jesus, you can't go back to Bethany. Okay, that's too close to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you. And Jesus said, you know, the hour hasn't come for me. You know, while it's still day, I can walk about. I'm not, I don't have to worry because I'm still, it's not my time, in other words. It's not my time to die. I can go back there and not fear death. But what he's saying is I'm not going to bring that about in this case. I'm not going to bring about premature um, uh, fascination about me as a Messiah. And I'm not going to allow the people to wrongly hinder the communication of the gospel. And so what he tells his parent, the, the parents to do is to tell no one. Not that they were to lie to people about what happened. Now, keep in mind, you have a bunch of mourners there. What do they think is going to happen next? A funeral, right? It's time to bury this daughter. And so Jesus is going to come out and the disciples are going to come out and they're going to head on their way and eventually it's going to become clear what He did. But for the meantime, I think in order to get out of the city and avoid all this commotion and something that would hinder the spread of the Gospel, He says, can you just delay for a little while? Tell them, Don't tell anybody about this. Obviously, when people start asking, How'd your, da- your daughter was dead. You're going to have to tell them the truth, but but for now, don't tell anybody. And perhaps they just stayed in the room and gave him time to leave. So saving faith relies on Christ's power, first, when all the resources have been exhausted, and second, as we just saw now, even when everyone else has given up. And so here's just one principle of application for us to, to draw from this passage. Even when we think that time runs out for Jesus to act, he can still act. Even when time, we think that time runs out for Jesus to act, He can still act. I, I was encouraged by the message from Dr. Compton from James chapter 5 a couple Wednesdays ago about prayer and healing. And he reminded us that faith is believing that, that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And so while we 
cannot put our trust in the desired outcome, in this case, the, the daughter being healed, we can put our confidence in Jesus and what He will do. And no matter what happens, we can still have His confidence. But, but even when we think all hope is lost for Christ to act, He can still act. And that's because Christ has power over all things. And, and we can trust Him. And that's what genuine saving faith does. It relies on Christ's power. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would help us to rely on Your power. And Lord, we often are prone to give up and to, to not be persistent in our prayers and to be too quick to, to think, oh, I guess You didn't answer our prayers. But Lord, help us to be like, like the, the persistent woman who kept coming to the unjust judge and kept asking and finally He granted her request even though He, being evil, knew what to do there, You, as our Heavenly Father, want to provide for us, want to answer us. And so we pray that You'd help us to be persistent, trusting in Your power and Your ability to reward us who seek You. We pray that You would help us to apply this to our lives because we don't want to just be hearers of Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.